Botnets have a massive influence on the internet. As we have seen recently with the Mirai botnet, IoT bots can take down companies as big as Netflix or Twitter. In our recent episodes about advertising fraud, we've talked about how bots are being used to take billions of dollars of revenue from advertisers. Derek Muller is one of those advertisers who has spent money on ads and gotten nothing but fake traffic in return. Two years ago, he posted a video on YouTube about his experience purchasing this advertising traffic on Facebook and how he just got likes from accounts that were clearly from fake accounts. Derek is the host of Veritasium, which is an awesome YouTube channel about science and truth and technology. Uh, so he's got some awesome YouTube videos, and he's turned that into a successful business. So it was very interesting to hear about his YouTube business. But more to the point of this episode, it was interesting to hear about how he basically paid for fake traffic. He paid for likes that ended up being fake. And this is a microcosmic example of the problems of advertising fraud and why I'm doing all these these episodes about it. Because if you work in tech, there's a good chance that you work on ad tech. So if you do, you should be trying to understand if your company is designed in a way to effectively prevent fraud. Because my sense from doing these shows is that as an industry, we can do better at preventing advertising fraud. So um, talk to people within your company about it uh, if you work in the ad tech industry. And uh, whether or not you work in the ad tech industry, I hope you like this episode with Derek. He's a very entertaining guest. Derek Muller is the creative director of Veritasium, a company that makes scientific and educational content online. Derek, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hey, thanks for having me. So you post a lot of videos on YouTube, and a few years ago you posted this YouTube video that showed evidence that Facebook's revenue benefited from fake likes. And before we get into the details of how this works, explain why you made this video. Such a long time ago, but uh, I guess the reason I made it was because I had this personal experience uh, with Facebook where, you know, a friend of mine actually took over the Facebook advertising because I wasn't really, you know, focused on what I was doing on Facebook. I was, you know, primarily a YouTube creator and I saw my Facebook numbers just taking off uh, and he wasn't investing that much money, but he was just sort of advertising uh, my page on Facebook uh, using Facebook's uh, sort of, you know, promote your page type features. So I thought, isn't that amazing? I've got so many fans on Facebook. This is incredible. Um, but, but I guess the the problem was that they didn't engage with my posts. It was as though, you know, I had 80,000 likes on Facebook, but uh, was getting no more engagement than when I had 2,000 uh, likes on Facebook. So something was fishy, and uh, I guess that started me down the path of trying to figure out what was going on. Scaling back a bit, what is the functionality of the like feature on Facebook? That's a good question. I mean, I think in the old days, I think what everyone assumed about the like button was, you know, if you were friends with someone, uh, you would see all their posts in your feed. And if you liked a page, you would see that page's um, posts in your feed. I think that was the basic idea uh, in the early days of Facebook, that a like meant show me what this guy's putting out. Mm. And over time, it has become kind of an engine of Facebook learning what to serve you, and it uses that to uh, help serve you more targeted ads and things like that. Um, and as a content creator, uh, you would benefit from having your content get into the hands of more people who uh, have liked things that are similar to the content that you're creating. So as a content creator, it, it does make sense from, from your stand, standpoint to, to seek out likes. Yeah, I think it made a lot of sense, especially back in the day when, you know, Facebook would basically show anything you post to a significant fraction of people who say they like your page. Um, I think that that uh, obviously it was great to have that as a distribution outlet. So, you know, people would get notified whenever you make something, you know, they like what you do, they want to see it. And this is a way for you to, you know, let them know. So in this video that you made, you were rehashing well, you started out at least, you were rehashing the results that were found by this reporter. There was a reporter who wrote a news article 
about this. I don't remember what that news article was, but the reporter had set up a page called Virtual Bagel, which is, you know, obviously an absurd thing. Who would who would pay attention to something like that? Uh, and he he was just creating that because his goal of the article was try, to try to derive the financial value of a like on Facebook. Like if you can get if you get something liked on Facebook what kind of monetary value does that have? And so in his research, he paid $100 to Facebook to promote his page, to promote Virtual Bagel. What happened when he paid for that promotion? I'm trying to remember now. I mean, <laughs> again, I hate to say it, but it's such a long time ago. Yeah, it was. Um, uh, you know, I, I remember that he got a lot of likes from countries where you know he wouldn't necessarily be interested in having followers i recall you know places like egypt i guess being where he was getting a lot of his likes yeah it looked like a click farm yeah. like he was he, he, had, he had paid for his site to be promoted right but he wound up with the quality of likes that he would get from a click farm and there are places where you can pay uh you know you can pay uh there are websites where you can just pay that are totally unrelated to facebook where you can pay people in Egypt to click on the like button and like your content. Um, but if you are purchasing ads through Facebook, you wouldn't expect to have the same quality of distribution. But that is, in fact, what happened to this virtual bagel reporter. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I, I think definitely promoting through Facebook's tool, you expect that you are you know, reaching people that matter to you. I think that's the line that Facebook actually uses. And you have a Facebook page yourself, Veritasium, and you have tried Facebook ads because Facebook gave you some free credit uh, to buy those ads. So when you bought those ads, I guess you're saying that the impression that Facebook was giving you was, oh, you'd be able to target people who are interested in what you are, uh, what you are the content you're producing. So what did you expect to get out of those ads when you were going to buy them? When I promoted the page on Facebook, I expected that, you know, a lot of the people who liked my videos on YouTube would just like my page on Facebook. And in fact, because I wasn't really sure how the Facebook system worked, I uh, asked a friend of mine to handle it for me um, because he had a big uh, Facebook page about science. So I just basically handed it off and I didn't really look closely at how um, he went about using that credit that Facebook gave. But I think he... he just promoted the page in a, the most simple way possible and just said, you know, yeah, show this page to more people and see who likes it. And and the likes came rolling in. Uh, it was increasing thousands by the day. Uh, and I thought it was amazing. Um, and <laughs> maybe also too good to be true. Right, which it ended up being 75% of your likes were from countries like Sri Lanka, Egypt, Bangladesh, the Philippines... These were the countries where accounts were liking your page uh, from using Facebook advertising. Um, so, I mean, what is problematic about that? How do you know that those aren't just, you know, legitimate accounts? Right. Well, I think the biggest sign that those were not legitimate accounts were that my engagement with the posts that I made did not go up um, as a result of having, you know, going from 2000 likes on my page to 80,000 likes. Um, if anything, the number of people liking and commenting on posts went down. And that's kind of a crazy result. You know, as a scientist, you look at uh, various systems and you think, what would I expect? I'd expect the engagement to go up 40 times. If those are genuine people who like my content, um, then of course they should be engaging at the same rates as as other people. So it, did it go down proportionally or did it go down like absolutely? I'm not sure to be precise. I think that the engagement stayed roughly the same and possibly went down on some posts. But, you know, Facebook was also making other shifts at that time, uh, for example, reducing the amount of distribution uh, any post got from any page. Um, so, yeah, it was a combination of things, but definitely I did not see an increase in uh, likes and comments on posts. If anything, there was a slight decrease. Right. So f so these fake likes have a either neutral or negative effect on your ability to actually reach your legitimate audience. So it's possible that 
paying for it, paying for the advertising that leads to these fake likes could actually just have the neg- have the reverse effect that you would like. Absolutely. I think it's it, even I think as the algorithm has adjusted over the years, it's become more and more true that having fake likes on the page is detrimental to the page. Because, you know, my understanding of Facebook's algorithm is they show your post initially to just a very small fraction of your audience to, to sort of test the waters and see if anyone likes this post. And that kind of makes sense from Facebook's point of view. They don't want to show a post to a whole bunch of people that maybe is just a really bad post. So they show it to maybe 1% of the audience or maybe even less than that to see, is this something that people are going to like and engage with? And if they do, that's when Facebook will show it to a, a bigger fraction of the audience. So having those fake likes there essentially means that some of that 1% of your audience may not even be uh, you know, a genuine account. And so they will not be engaging with with your posts, which makes all of your posts look less effective and look less interesting than they are. And you suggested one potential solution where you could you could have done an advertising campaign where you would exclude these countries where fake likes frequently come from. You could exclude Bangladesh and Egypt and Sri Lanka. Um, is there something wrong with that strategy? Is there something about that strategy that wouldn't work? Well, I mean, I did run an experiment. So, you know, in the model of Virtual Bagel, I created Virtual Cat, um, as I know the internet loves cats. And so what I wanted to do with uh, that experiment was basically replicate the same results of Virtual Bagel and show that if you if you just promote a page, it doesn't matter what it is, you could call the followers of that page stupid, uh, which I did on Virtual Cat, um, you know, you could make the most ridiculous page, but you could prom- pay to promote it on Facebook and you'd end up with click farm likes, you know, likes from the types of countries like Egypt and the Philippines and all that sort of stuff. If you weren't careful about targeting, that was my plan. So when I started that experiment, uh, for whatever reason, I just thought, well, let me prove first that this page is so stupid and so idiotic that no one outside of a click farm country would like it. So first I targeted ads only at places like the United States and Canada, Australia and the UK, places where I did have a legitimate following with, with Veritasium and places where I suspected there are going to be no click farms. So I just wanted to, to demonstrate to myself and, you know, for this experiment, you can't get likes on this page from rational people. Um, that, that was step one. And then step two, I was going to open it up to places like Egypt and the Philippines and Sri Lanka and, and just show that the likes come pouring in. Um, but that's where I got surprised because in phase one of my experiment, uh, using only countries that I would not expect to see click farms in, uh, I still got a lot of likes within the first day, you know, spending just 10, 20 bucks. I had, 20, 40 uh, people liking the page immediately, 60 people, uh, and and it it just kept growing. So even in countries where I thought there's no way these are click farms, uh, I was still getting likes that seemed odd. I think you paid $10 to get exposure to this virtual cat page, and you got a bunch of likes that looked like they were from places that, I mean, they were not from Sri Lanka or Egypt or whatever. Where were these likes coming from? They were coming from the U.S. and Canada, the U.K. You know, they were coming from from places where I didn't think there should be fake accounts. But when I started looking at the individual accounts that had liked the page, I found these people were liking thousands and thousands of pages, which if, if I looked at my own friend circle, uh, did not seem normal, right? Most of my friends don't like thousands of pages on Facebook. Um, but almost everyone who liked my virtual cat page did like, you know, 900, 800, 1,000, 2,000 pages. Um, and so that sort of behavior I deemed very unusual. Now, Facebook has deleted fake accounts in the past, and you mentioned one sweep that happened in the past where Facebook deleted 83 million accounts but they didn't delete the likes that came from those accounts. Why is that problematic? I'm not even sure they deleted those account- those accounts at all. I mean, I'm sure they deleted 83 million accounts, but my, my suggestion from my experience is that there may be many more millions out there that they didn't delete. So I know, for example, on the Veritasium page, when they did their sweep and deleted accounts, 
I was still, you know, I still have most of those 80,000 accounts that I think were kind of click fraud or, or certainly not genuine accounts. Um, I still have them on the Veritasium page and I still feel like they're a bit of dead weight that I lug around with me, even though now the page has something like 350,000 uh, likes. You know, I still feel kind of saddled with a whole bunch of uh, uh, fake likes. And so for a while, my strategy had to be for every post I would make, I would have to target around those countries uh, to try to exclude those, you know, false accounts from being shown this post and then artificially dragging down the kind of engagement scores uh, that these posts would get. Did you get any response from Facebook when you posted these videos? Not really. Not not directly to me. However, it became a bit of a story that some uh, reporters followed up on and reporters got a response from Facebook, which I thought is, you know, uh, <laughs> it, Facebook basically played to confirmation bias. So their response to my concerns that there were fake accounts and fake likes happening was there are businesses that have been successful in uh, you know promoting products on Facebook, therefore there are no fake likes. It's kind of a, a it's a funny logic which would appeal to someone um, if they were kind of looking to say that Facebook was great. You know, like oh I can I can of course there are companies out there that have made money on Facebook and that that use it very successfully. And I still use Facebook. I think it's a valuable platform. That doesn't mean that there aren't problems. That doesn't mean that there aren't fake likes and that, you know, some of the ad revenue may be wasted. Um, you can look at big, um, you know, government uh, attempts to engage lots of fans on Facebook and eventually getting, you know, basically no engagement, but 600,000 likes and that sort of thing. Or, or you know, spending hundreds of thousands of dollars and yet ending with no, um, nothing to show for it. So... Why is this important? I mean, why? Because, I mean, I have my own reasons for believing why this is important, and I'm doing a series of shows about uh, ad fraud because my my assertion is basically that um, the, 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 ad, the ad tech industry is really, really big, and the internet, the current structure of the internet is really dependent on advertising. And yet we are in this perverse position where we can't really audit the the ad tech industry. So why why is this important? You know, I think making sure that advertising is what it purports to be is very important because a lot of people are spending a lot of money um, to get their content, you know, to the audiences that they they want them to get to. So you know, I know Google went through this in the early days of you know, having um, pay-per-click type advertising. They have a whole division around click fraud. Um, and similarly, I think, you know, Facebook needs to have that as well. If if these companies can't show that they're sure that the clicks are genuine, that they're sure that the audiences that you're reaching are genuine, then I think that, that leads to a big sort of crisis of confidence for the whole industry. Uh, and people are going to be much less willing to to pay to s- promote their, their stuff if it's not reaching real audiences. So I think the burden of proof is kind of on the on these sort of advertising networks, including Facebook and Google, to demonstrate that everything is what it seems. Uh, for, for some online ad networks, they open themselves up to third-party scrutiny. So, you know, Google can't claim to send a certain number of, uh, a certain amount of traffic to your web page, but that not match up with, say, a third-party account of how much traffic your website's getting, right? So there should be third-party audits of all of this to make sure that everything's legitimate. Um, When I was investigating this, Facebook was one of the few companies that was refusing to allow third-party audits. So everything about the Facebook sort of model struck me as a little bit dodgy. Uh, And I thought... I hope that they've cleaned up their act uh, in the last few years. Um, but it just seems like everything is a little bit of a gray area there. And, and uh, I was a little skeptical of, of what was going on. Yeah, I agree with all that. And I would say it's a lot of gray area. Um, what what worries me is it like, you know, I talked to some people who are like, look, if if there was that much fraud in the industry 
you know, it, that would be factored into the price. And that would be factored into the price of advertising. Uh, advertisers would uh, sense that over time, you know, efficient market hypothesis, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I just think about the 2008 financial crisis where we had herds of bankers that believed these mortgage-backed securities were uncorrelated. Oh, these are definitely worth the amount of money that we're trading them at. And it turned out that the herd was wrong. And uh, it turned out that there was not an efficient market in the mortgage-backed security industry, which was a giant industry. Um, And that's you know, I'm really beginning to suspect that that's what's going on with this advertising stuff because um, I, I, I do not see auditability. And, and, and regardless of if you have, a, even if you have a third party uh, monitor, there's nothing that the third party can do. There's nothing that Google can do. This is too hard of a problem to reliably say how much fraud there is. Partially because like if, the, if fraud is making it past your system, how can you audit your own system? How can you even say with confidence what percentage of your traffic is fraudulent if, by its very nature, that fraud is not being caught? Absolutely, I think it's a problem. When I first posted my videos about uh, the Facebook like fraud, most people were very supportive. Uh, and I think they looked at the experiment that I ran and they saw that you know I was just trying to get to the bottom of it. I was trying to figure out what was going on. And I think there were a lot of pieces of evidence, for example... The engagement I got from most countries on my uh, Veritasium Facebook page was, you know, in the 30 to 50 percent on every post. So or or on a, a post over a month. So genuine accounts were engaging with what I did on, on a level of, you know, every other post kind of thing on average. But for the countries like the Philippines, Egypt, uh, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, where I had big followings as a result of that uh, promoting the page campaign, I was getting engagements of around 1%, uh, less than 5%, uh, surely, in all of those countries. And that, to me, was such a key indicator that I had all of these accounts that weren't behaving like normal accounts. And those are the ones that I gained through promoting the page. Um, so most people, I think, understood that I was out there to run an experiment and figure out what was going on. But I did get significant pushback from social media marketers, basically people who, uh, you know, their job is to promote other people's pages on Facebook. And they were trying to reassure their clients, no, 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 what he's talking about is rubbish. Or, you know, you just need me because I know what I'm doing. He didn't know what he was doing. Um, that to me uh, is reminiscent of what you said about you know the housing crisis. If you have a whole bunch of people who are invested in believing that something uh, works or something is worth the value that people think it is, uh, they may kind of ignore evidence to the contrary, and they may just look for evidence that confirms what they believe. Um, There was a prominent sort of Facebook marketer who took issue with uh, the experiments that I ran. And he said, I just wish he had taken this further and and pushed the experiments more and put more money into it and and investigated more accounts. And, And I was thinking, you know, you're a Facebook expert. I invested, I don't know, 50 bucks or something like that. If you want, you can go out there and do the same experiment. It's not it's not hard to replicate. And this is the process of science. No one has to believe me because, you know, uh, I'm telling you what I did. If you doubt what I did, you know, go try it for yourself. That was exactly what I was saying to the industry. And I was I was shocked that the response I got was kind of incredulity uh, covered over with, oh, I wish he had tried this. It's like, wait, you don't, you don't have have to have me to do it. Like you can do it yourself. It's it's really really easy to to run experiments on the system and try to test your hypotheses because really that's what this comes down to. You know how genuine are those likes and and how uh, worthwhile are those engagements? Well, it's funny because another similarity I think about uh, to the the two thousand eight crisis is like. There's like this one, you know. There's this huge industry where um, nobody really has an interest in um, po- in policing what's going on, and and nobody has an interest in stopping the music uh, except for this like single party that is kind of getting bilked, um, which is you know I guess in the I guess kind of in the mortgage backed security was. I guess the the borrowers who had these adjustable rate mortgages, and then in the in the ad tech world, it's these 
Procter and Gamble or Ford, uh, you know, these companies that are buying tons of digital advertising online that is not easy to measure. It's like stuff that is not easy to, uh, you know, maybe the conversion based stuff is a little easier to measure, but like this more brand advertising is a lot harder to measure. Um, so, so yeah, I don't know. And, 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 uh, you know, I, I'm talking to an ad fraud specialist on the show, uh, in an upcoming episode and his, his mission has kind of become to talk to the brands, talk to these big brands and like, say to them, like, Hey, you guys should really be holding Facebook and Google's feet to the fire. And, and of course, all these other ad tech companies that perhaps have less of a, um, sterling reputation, um, you should really hold their feet to the fire if you want to see where your advertising dollars are going. Um, but I don't know. But it's interesting because, like, even those even those companies, like, they have a CMO. You know, the, the Ford has some CMO, and it's like, if they can't spend their money on digital, where are they going to spend their money? That's where all the eyeballs are. Um, but uh, I don't know. It's interesting. Like, so, you know, I mean, the, what I like about the Veritasium project with your different videos, and we'll get into this more, is, you are a truth seeker. So when you have a situation like this where it's really hard to prove exactly what is going on, I mean, that's how I feel when I'm digging into this. Is like I, can't, I feel like I can't prove very much about it. I mean, what is the approach that you're supposed to take? I think it's definitely the experimental approach. So you try to, you know, test a hypothesis and hold variables as constant as you can and, and vary certain things and um, look at the results objectively. That's what I tried to do with uh, with this. And that video that we're discussing, that we're referring to, is almost three years old, um, which, you know, maybe maybe Facebook has cleaned up a lot since then. Um, but I think at this point, they're like an 11-year-old company, 10 or 11-year-old company. So you would think even three years ago, they would have a little more of a... Um, a good filtration system for for fraud but have you kept up with facebook since then have you kept up with like how um you know do you have any perspective on how their their advertising pipeline has changed not really i mean i keep using facebook personally uh or or for veritasium and i found it much more effective once i realized that i had all these countries with not um not genuine likes I found that excluding them from my posts increased the reach and engagement in my posts about tenfold. So it was after I did that video and I, that's when I really took a hard look. I mean, before that I was like, uh, I have some fake likes on my page. I don't really know what to do or how to figure this out. Um, but once I made that video and I took a hard look at all the likes on my page and I said, whoa, you know, 80,000 are from, from these countries where I don't think anyone in these countries or, or many people in these countries uh, actually watch my videos on YouTube. I, I think that these accounts are totally bogus. Um, it was only after that that uh, I started getting much better engagement from, from Facebook by targeting every post around those countries. And I just wish that, uh, you know, Facebook gave me a tool so I could actually remove those uh, likers from my page in some sort of bulk way. Um, because it was as though advertising through Facebook actually made the page less effective. Um, you know, that was clearly the evidence that I had. Now, you know, Facebook is continuing down a tough path because now if I post something that's successful, I'll get these little notifications from Facebook that say, hey, this post is performing better than 95% of posts on this page, right? And to me, if you're a social media network and you want uh, you know, the people who come to you, to your app and whatever to enjoy their experience, you want to show them popular posts. That's, you know, the name of the game, right? People go on social media to see the popular stuff. And yet here's Facebook. And because they need to find a way to make money out of it, they're basically saying to content creators, we know that this content is really uh, good. We know that your followers like it, but we're not going to just show it to them because we need to make money somehow. So how about you pay us and then we'll show it to them. So I think that this this sort of business model always to me seemed a little bit backwards um, compared to YouTube, for example, where, you know, YouTube wants people to see your content if it's uh, liked, if it's successful, if it's um, uh, attracting a lot of engagement. 
and they don't want people to see it if it's not great. So, you know, YouTube has the the incentive to show more stuff to more people when it's good and uh, and not to show it so much when it's not getting great engagement. Facebook kind of has the opposite uh, incentive or they definitely want you to pay more uh, when it is good because then they know you want to get it out to more people. So it's it's sort of an awkward business model where I feel like the objectives of all the parties are not aligned. So in contra- so YouTube, the objectives are aligned because YouTube pays the creators for views on their content. Facebook, in contrast, is maybe Facebook requires the creators to pay for distribution. So on YouTube, YouTube takes care of the distribution somewhat or the or says, hey, creator, you have to take care of the distribution, but you'll be rewarded for the views on your content. Facebook says, uh, we'll take care of distribution if you just pay us more. And then you have to figure out other ways to monetize that content. Exactly. Exactly. So I, you know, <laughs> it's just the way I guess the business models work. Um, I still, you know, for all of Facebook's flaws, I still find it a very useful a platform. So it's it's funny because I can recognize its flaws, uh, but also see the, see the value in it and see the ways that I can use it um, that that work well. Um, you know, but I think like Facebook's approach has always been a little bit unethical uh, because, for example, when they went into video, they didn't build in a content ID system, uh, which YouTube now has. So they basically went into video. And, you know, 80% of their big view hits were ripped almost directly off YouTube and and, uh, other sites. So a lot of the success of video on on Facebook was through copyright infringement, um, which I, I don't think they've really resolved yet. And furthermore, their way of counting views is if someone spends three seconds muted with a video playing, that counts as a view. So again, crazy inflated view numbers, uh, you know, really obnoxious copyright infringement. They should have known better with all of these things. And and maybe they should have known better with click fraud. But to me, it feels like they're willing to play a little bit fast and loose uh, to try to pump up their their sales numbers. I know there's there's huge expectations on Facebook uh, as a publicly listed company. I get that they have to show progress, but you know I think that sometimes led led them to kind of bend the rules a little bit. Have you studied the broader online advertising ecosystem at all? I have not. No, I mean my interest in in Facebook ad fraud really came down to the fact that. I thought something weird was going on and I thought people should know. Uh, and that's why I made my videos about Facebook. I, I don't really have a general interest in online advertising because uh, it's not part of my world. Well, I do want to talk a little bit more about your world because it is uh, about science and this show is is rooted in science. It's mostly focused on the software engineering aspects of science, but um, you know, getting things right in software engineering is often about understanding how to conduct experiments, how to be scientific. Um, and so from that point of view, wh- talk a bit about Veritasium. What are your motivations with the Veritasium project? I got started in Veritasium because of my kind of three passions, one in filmmaking, two in education, and uh, three in science. So this was like the perfect job for me. I I love what I do, which is just making videos about any topic that sort of has any sort of scientific aspect to it uh, that interests me. So yeah, I guess my goal is to kind of be a teacher, but also be a filmmaker. And so as an example of that, you had a video recently where you were discussing the idea that most published research is wrong. It, It is not reproducible. You talked about this project with the goal of reproducing scientific papers known as the Reproducibility Project, and you talked about how few of these papers really can be reproduced. Why is that? Did we make a wrong turn in science somewhere that led us to having a bunch of buggy studies that can't be reproduced? Well, let me say first up that getting to objective truths is hard, and that's why the scientific enterprise does have you know, it's, it, it goes down some dead ends sometimes. And um, and sometimes things are published which turn out to be false. Um, 
I think more recently, there's a challenge of incentives, again, when it comes to the scientists and it comes to journals and uh, research institutions, all of them have incentives which align with um, publishing a lot and not necessarily uh, disincentives for publishing false things. So, you know, when you set up a system like that, I guess you shouldn't be surprised if the result has a lot of uh, a lot of incorrect uh, published papers in it and and sort of a lower quality of research. There's there's a lot of people trying to make a career in science now, and uh, there's really only one way to have a successful career, and that's to publish. And getting things wrong doesn't matter as much as you think it maybe should. Right, and you gave an example of how this can work in practice with this study of weight loss, where. There was a study that was constructed with a very small sample size. Like it was this example where... Yeah, uh, three groups. Each one was about five people. And uh, the finding was that uh, eating chocolate uh, led to faster weight loss uh, in uh, in combination with a low-carb diet than just the low-carb diet itself or uh, than, than no intervention than just a control group. So, yeah, I mean... Uh, if you set up an experiment in that kind of way, I, this this experiment was set up knowingly to basically demonstrate how easy it is to get a false positive and then how easy it is to get the news media around the world to embrace it because it's such a great narrative. Um, that, that is kind of our one of our biggest problems in science, right? Small sample sizes and, um, you know, fun stories that sort of detract from the fact that the science wasn't run as well as it should have been. So this study was was literally designed to yield desirable results regardless of the outcome. So it was an academic example, but I feel like this is actually everywhere in our society. Like we see experiments designed to succeed in we see it in economics, we see it certainly in medicine, dramatically in medicine. I'm sure we see it in online advertising in certain ways. Um but yeah, I mean, is it like, is this always how science has been conducted? I feel like there was a point in time where, like, you have a hypothesis up front, you try to test that hypothesis, and if you're proven wrong, you say, okay, I was proven wrong. It's not like this, okay, I'm going to do an experiment, and then I'm going to structure the experiment uh, to have a, a successful result after I see the results of that experiment. Yeah, you know, I think science, I mean, we can we can say that it was different in the past, but I think there's always it's always been a human endeavor and as such it's always been subject to human foibles. You can look back to the early days uh there's a the Millikan oil drop experiment I think is a famous example um where, you know, we're trying to figure out properties of the electron and uh, the scientist performing the work got some good results. He also got some results that didn't really help his case or that he thought, you know, just kind of, you know, muddied the waters. And so he hid those results, chucked them in a drawer and just published the ones that uh, supported uh, what he thought was really happening. So, you know, it's always been that kind of thing. It turns out he was right, but uh, <laughs> it turns out we've always been doing things that are a little bit nefarious um, and, and that's just because, you know, there's, there's human incentives behind all this and, and you got to publish or perish or you got to make a name for yourself somehow. And, um, you know, science has a very good record of at least, you know, correcting those, uh, mistakes when they happen. At least we're trying to get to the truth. Um, the system could be better designed to, uh, to help us, you know, get there more often. And I think some of the changes we're seeing coming down the pipe are, are good ones. Like for example, um, you know, writing to journals first before you do a study and describing exactly the study that you're going to run and exactly the analysis you're going to execute. And, you know, then regardless of the results, that journal will agree to publish or not your paper based on what you're doing rather than on the results you get. I definitely had the experience as a research scientist of, you know, sometimes having papers rejected because of the result of the experiment. When I could point to a very similar uh, experiment in that that was published in the journal, but it just got a different result. And in my view, if you're only publishing an experiment because it got uh, of the result it got, I, I feel like that's not science. You got to publish based on, you know, what the experiment is and let the result be what it is. Um, that's one of the big problems is that nobody wants to publish null results these days. So, or, you know, no one ever really wanted to publish null results because that's less interesting, but it leads to a horrible bias in, in the research literature that gets published. It certainly does. So 
you, as you said, have spent some time in academia. Do you have any sense for how the publications that come out of academia differ from the type of scientific research that comes out of industry? That's a very good question. I don't know much about uh, publications that come out of industry that aren't also published in academic journals. You know, for me, the main body of literature is is the academic one. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if that's very helpful. For no, me. no. That's honest, honest answer. Um, so, you know, I think I think even institutions publish in in academic journals. You you want to publish like you know if you publish something in Nature or Science, you know that's that's the holy grail, right? So, you know, our world is so rife with statistical lies and and misunderstandings about statistics. Um, and, you know, I, I like any sort of media source that promotes a healthy amount of skepticism, which I think Veritasium really does. How, how, does, how, does, that, how does it change your behavior to be somebody that is... Um, you know, reflexively looking for statistical uh, mishaps in our everyday culture? You know, the, the first thing that comes to mind is that I think life is more difficult if you are more skeptical. I think that human brains don't love ambiguity. But as a scientist like myself, it's sort of part of my nature that I have to deal with doubt and ambiguity all the time. Um, this bleeds into all aspects of my life. Like when I'm asked simple questions, like, do you want a cup of tea? I, I actually consider the question in kind of a deep way of like, would I like that? And kind of envisioning myself, it's, it's horrible. Um, but I think it's the kind of approach that one needs if you are to get to, uh, the truth of matters, you know, our, our brains are very good at leaping to conclusions. I'll give you a fun example. Um, there's, there's some sort of, uh, kidney disease. And, and I believe that the place where this kidney disease is most, most common in the U S is in small, uh, rural, uh, sort of red state areas, if you, if you will. So like little populated rural I feel like I'm butchering this story, but anyway, that there, there's there's some sort of affliction, and it and it afflicts, uh, you know, the highest percentage in in these sort of small town, uh, rural Republican areas. And uh, the question could be, you know, like why why is that? And you you might want to draw some association with I don't know lifestyle or what's happening out there. If you if you ask the question where where are the lowest incidences of these of this disorder, the answer is also in low populated rural kind of Republican areas. So the reason is there's nothing causal about those communities. What's causal is small sample sizes. So when you have uh, you know small towns or or small counties or whatever then statistical fluctuations push, push the numbers way up and way down. But people looking at one thing or the other might be inclined to draw conclusions from that. You know, might might be looking for some sort of causal connections. <laughs> I'm not sure if any of this helps helps in where we're trying to go with this uh, in, the, in this answer. But I guess the point I'm trying to make is that, you know, taking a scientific approach is uncomfortable from a human standpoint. It means withholding judgment. It means not trying to confirm what you believe, but actually looking to disconfirm or to contradict what you believe. That's the scientific approach. And not making spurious causal relationships. Right. We we so love to jump to causal relationships. You have to take a step back and say, that's one hypothesis. What are the other things that could be going on here? Everybody loves a causal relationship. Everyone loves a story. Um, you know, I made a number of videos about about this. In fact, c- kind of inspired by the whole Facebook event, I made this video about confirmation bias, uh, which is called Can You Solve This? It's about a little number game. Uh, uh, have you seen this video? I don't think I saw that one. Well, we can play the number game then. Because basically I went up to people and I said, look, I'm going to tell you three numbers, a three number sequence. And what I want you to do is try to figure out 
this rule I have in mind that my numbers obey. <laughs> okay. Uh, but I don't just want you to guess the rule. What I want you to do is propose your own set of three numbers. Could be whatever numbers you like, but I will say yes if that follows the rule that I was thinking. Okay. And no if it doesn't follow the rule. And then after that, you can propose what, what rule you think it is. So, okay. You ready to play? Yeah. Okay. So the three numbers in my sequence are two, four, and eight. Two, four, eight. Okay. I'm going to say. Uh, 9, 18, 36. Those numbers also follow my rule. Okay. So what is the rule? Uh, pick random numbers. Uh, that is not the rule. <laughs> that is not the rule. Do you, do you want to try another three numbers? Okay, no, no, I'll, I'll, I'll say another uh, I'll say another rule. Okay, the rule is like you start with one number and then double it and then double it again. Right, that is a rule and the rules, I agree, uh, they do obey both uh, num- sets of numbers that you proposed and, and I proposed, but that is not actually the rule that I'm thinking of. Oh, okay. So you should propose another, another another set of three numbers would would be helpful. Another set of three numbers. Okay. Um, eight, sixteen, thirty-two. That also follows the rule. Yes. Okay. Uh, so um, uh, even numbers that can be doubled is not the rule. No, okay. Okay, I don't know. I concede. You can't concede. Three more numbers. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, one, two, four. Follows the rule. Okay. Um, three more numbers. Three. Wait, I have to say three more numbers again? Yeah, say, say three more numbers. Okay. Uh, uh, 16, 32, 64. Uh, yeah, also follows the rule. Do you know what the rule is yet? Uh, powers of two in, in order? It is not powers of two. I mean... Oh, no, because that wouldn't work for the first one that I said. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I, I, but all of the num- all of the, the numbers you propose do follow the rule. Okay. I don't know. I honestly, I honestly have to give up at this point. Well, let me ask you this question. Did you propose to me any set of three numbers where it wasn't double it and double it again? Uh, no. So this is a perfect example of what the human brain does. It sees a pattern and then says, I know what the pattern is. It's this pattern. And then it continually tests that pattern again and again and again. But you were never going to get any information that way because I was going to say, yes, all of those things follow the rule. But that's not the rule. Mm. So what do we have to do as humans? We need to propose rules that don't follow what we were thinking, Mm. right? To test a hypothesis, you have to try to break it. You have to try to break your rule. So a, a good a good set of numbers would have been eight, sixteen, thirty-one, right? That would right. have been a good a good set of numbers to test, and you would have found that that too follows the rule. So maybe you would have tried eight, nine, ten. That also follows the rule. Maybe then you would have tried ten, nine, eight, which does not follow the rule. So all you needed was numbers in ascending order. So this is this is what I'm talking about. I'm and I'm glad we get to the heart of the matter here, right? Which is that uh, this is what's hard about science, and this is what's hard about interpreting our world. When we see patterns, we're so drawn to them that sometimes we don't notice that the pattern that we we saw maybe was just noise, maybe was not the pattern that was there. Um, but if we go on just kind of believing that, you know. We get ourselves in a lot of a problem, lot of, lot of trouble, and we just don't get to the truth. Absolutely, yeah, no, that's true. And you could spend a lot of time in like a local maxima of error. Exactly, uh, exactly. Okay. I, I I love. Uh, there's a book by Nate Silver called "The Signal and the Noise," and and a lot of that book kind of talks about overfitting. So you know, there's certain patterns in data, but like maybe that maybe that's not the real pattern. Maybe that's not the real trend. Maybe that's just noise, and you've you've kind of fit the noise. Yeah. And that's a problem. When, it, when you know, I talked to these uh, Facebook marketers, everyone wanted to say, because I've seen Facebook marketing be effective for me, I know that it is effective and there couldn't possibly be fake accounts where they don't realize that both things could be true. It could be true that, yeah, Facebook marketing works well for some people in some situations. Uh, and also there are fake likes that are costing businesses and the government hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars. Okay. Well, so just to close off, I want to talk a little bit about the the business of running a YouTube business because it seems similar to the podcast business. And I'm just curious about the strategy and the economics uh, of it. 
so what's your experience running a YouTube business been like? Uh, my experience has been that it's the favorite, my favorite thing that I've ever done in my life, uh, that I feel like I get to work on my dream job. Um, virtually every day I get to choose something that I'm interested in and, um, try to pursue it and try to create something that I'm proud of. Um, it can be a challenge, but I'd say more, more often than not, it's, it's very rewarding. For the first two years of making the YouTube channel, I didn't make any money. Um, so definitely it's a thing that had a large lead time on it. And if I hadn't been so passionate, dedicated, and um, really wanted this thing to work, uh, I probably would have stopped in it. And, you know, that that was the hardest part. Um, but now it's, it's just amazing to, you know, I, I feel remarkably lucky and, and I'm uh, yeah, just thankful for every day that I can, I can make YouTube videos. That's awesome. So it is, so it's a full-time business or do you have to run, do you have to do other media channels and stuff too? The YouTube channel is uh, definitely, it's a full-time job. Uh, I do other bits and pieces. Like I do, uh, talks sometimes for teachers or other groups. Um, I do some TV shows like right now I've just wrapped, uh, filming with Netflix for the uh, show Bill Nye Saves the World, so I'm a correspondent on that show. That's awesome. Yeah, thanks. And I, I filmed a couple documentaries, one for PBS called Uranium Twisting the Dragon's Tail, and another documentary on Curiosity Stream called Digits, which is all about the internet. So, um, yeah, a lot of opportunities have kind of come my way uh, a bit as a result of the YouTube channel. But the YouTube channel is still kind of where my heart is, and that's uh, where I want to keep putting my effort. So what's in the future for Veritasium? What kind of topics are you going to be covering in the near future? I am working on a video right now, which is about how we can use a vibrating bath of silicon oil and little droplets on the surface to uh, simulate kind of quantum mechanics. And what does that tell us about about how, how the weird, crazy quantum world works? That sounds awesome. Okay, yeah. well... Um, well, Derek, thanks for coming on the show and discussing fake likes and veritasium and all your your scientific uh, philosophies. It's 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 been a real pleasure, and I'm uh, I continue to tune into your YouTube channel. Fantastic! Thanks so much for chatting to me. Thanks to Symphono for sponsoring Software Engineering Daily. Symphono is a custom engineering shop where senior engineers tackle big tech challenges while learning from each other. Check it out at symphono.com slash sedaily. That's S-Y-M-P-H-O-N-O dot com slash sedaily. Thanks again, Symphono. Wow.